Well, I imagine you're all familiar with the fish story. These are stories told by fishermen of glorious wrestlings or feet-sized fish. They tend to be excessive. They tend to be exaggerated, even quite extravagant. In fact, these stories have earned a reputation for being over the top. And that's unfortunate because there are unbelievable yet true fish stories out there. One fisherman was kayaking along fishing and he encountered a a rattlesnake gliding along the surface of the water. And he marveled at the movement of this snake upon the water, thinking if only I could figure a way to, to use that to catch a fish. Well, long story short, he acquired that rattlesnake and he baited the end of his line with it. And a few casts later, he lands a bass. True story, not just a fish story, but a true fish story. He says he, he snagged that bass before the snake even hit the water. There's another occasion where a fisherman encountered a, a bass floating atop the water. A bit unusual because only dead fish do that. Well, coming along, he found that this fish was in fact alive yet struggling. He scooped up the fish to see what was wrong, and looking at its mouth, there was yet another fish. This bass bit off more than it could chew. He performed a rescue and released the bass, and it swam and lived another day. Well, consider a third fisherman. He fastens a hook to the end of a string, and he casts this hook into the sea. He catches a fish and pulls him in. And as he peers into the mouth of this fish, he discovers a coin. A coin meant not for his own spending, but to pay a tax which he owes. What's remarkable about this story is that it's not only true, but it was predicted that all of this would actually happen. How did this man know that he would find this fish this way? Why is he paying taxes with the money? And what does any of this have to do with you and the Bible? Well, if you would, open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 17. It's the last four verses of Matthew 17. It's the account of the temple tax. The latter story, which I shared, is indeed a fish story and a true fish story. That's a story of Peter catching a fish to pay a temple tax. Jesus will teach us about freedom and the right use of that freedom. And he does it through this narrative this morning. Jesus teaches us about freedom and the right use of our freedom. Well, freedom is an amazing gift. This is a word that we as Americans celebrate. It's a word that we're well acquainted with. We enjoy incredible freedoms in our nation. Indeed, if you scanned the pages of world history, you'd be hard-pressed to find other peoples across history who've enjoyed such freedoms as we do. Benjamin Franklin called our freedoms a right. The laws of God, the laws of nature assign freedom to us. But that is not all. 
That's not all when it comes to freedom, not, not for the Christian anyway. I would say that the American Christian is doubly free, if I could even say it that way, because when you came to faith in Christ, you were set free. The Bible says you're free from condemnation. You're free from sin. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 tells us you were called to freedom. That means that in terms of sin, you are free. In terms of society, you are free. And God has given us amazing gifts of freedom. As a result then, there are different ways that we can use this freedom. There are bad ways, there are good ways, and there are best ways. Jesus teaches us best ways this morning. Well, I want to begin by explaining our passage. These few verses have three main movements, and at the end of that time, we'll follow up with four points of application or how all this applies to us. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, Go to the sea and throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. In these few verses, we find a cost, a conversation, and finally a command. And we'll begin with the cost. Judaism came with a fee. To be a Jew, it cost you something. Now, notice in verse 24, Jesus and his disciples arrive in Capernaum. This seems to be a a headquarters or a a, a missions central for Jesus and his men. Presumably at this time, all 12 disciples are with him. They've come off some pretty tough stuff. If you look back at verse 23, we read of their grief. They're dismayed at the prospect of losing Jesus. He predicts his death and his resurrection. This upends their world. They're grieved over this. Going back even further in verse 17, there they learned a hard lesson about faith. We can even look ahead in chapter 18. Look at verse 1. There's more tough lessons that remain for the disciples. If verse 1 is any indication, their, their hearts are in need of more instruction and more learning. But once again in our passage this morning, Matthew zeroes in on Peter, Simon Peter. Again, this disciple, he tends to to rise to the top yet again. We might call him the, the leader of the disciples. He's at least the most vocal. Remember, it was Peter and Matthew who walked on water. He walked on water to Jesus. It was Peter who declared Jesus the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. That's an important declaration. 
And it was Peter who, who offered to construct tabernacles. If you can recall the transfiguration back at the beginning of our chapter. The appearance of Jesus changed and alongside him appeared Moses and Elijah. Well, it was Peter who wanted to build tabernacles or tents for them all to remain. And in verse 24, a question of taxes is asked of Peter. Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now, this two drachma tax is also known as a temple tax. Some of your Bibles may read that way. A temple tax or, or tribute money. That would be the equivalent of a two days' worth of wages for the disciples. And every Jew 20, age 20 years and older, well, they were all required to pay this. The money went to help support the temple. This goes back to Exodus chapter 30. God gave his law through Moses to the people, and they were required to pay this tax. Listen to what God says. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give contribution to the Lord. Now, keep in mind, this is Matthew recording this account. You may recall his former vocation. It was Matthew, the tax collector. Back in chapter 9, he left that job. He walked out of the tax booth, and he gave his life to Christ. He followed him as a disciple. He collected taxes for Rome. And to be clear, this is not that. This temple tax is collected by Jewish people to keep the temple running. It would be like church elders collecting a fee from you to keep Emmanuel running. Now, we don't do that, at least for two reasons. The first, you would riot. (laughs) And the second is that the Bible has a much better plan for giving. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that we learn that our giving is voluntary. Our giving of funds or gifts to to God's people, to the church, it's an overflow of the heart. Giving is always about you and Jesus. It's not about you and a rule or an amount or, or some obligation. But when asked if he, Peter, and Jesus, do you pay this tax, he says, yes. And what follows then in our account is a conversation. Peter and Jesus talk taxes. You see, Peter enters the house, and even before he can speak, Jesus asks, remember, he'd be fully aware, all-knowing, fully aware of the exchange with the tax collectors. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect their customs or their poll tax? Do they collect from their sons or from strangers? In other words, do kings tax their kids? And Peter rightly answers him that the sons are exempt. The the children are free. The sons of kings would not pay their fathers. The fathers would not demand a tax from their sons. Well, God the father, God the king, he also has a son. And his name is Jesus. And in the same way, Jesus is free. Jesus is exempt 
from the tax. As the Son of God, Jesus is not obligated to pay the temple tax. Maybe we could say it another way, or we could ask the question simply, who owns the temple? Well, God does, and his Son is exempt. We might even do well to press this further, going back to Exodus chapter 30. Remember, it was from there that we read the rule of where all of this came from. God instructed his people to pay a temple tax. Again, what did that tax go toward as God's people paid this year after year, decade after decade? It went toward atonement. It went toward sacrifices. It went toward anointing oil and toward incense. The temple tax went toward basins for washing and offerings in smoke, but Christ fulfilled it all. All of this pointed to Jesus. Anointed Messiah, Jesus offered up his body as an atonement that washes away our sin. It's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. If there be one man who should never pay the temple tax. It is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's free. He is the Son of God. And in a similar way, Peter is as well. Because Peter is born of a new birth. Peter is a member of a new family. Peter is a citizen of a different kingdom. Which makes, thirdly, the command all the more significant. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. So in a miraculous fashion, Jesus would indeed pay the tax. Again, it is Jesus who provides not only the money, but the means to get the money. Remember, Jesus didn't have to do this. He did not owe the temple authorities a temple tax. But do you see his purpose? So that, so that we do not offend them. The Greek word is skandalizo. You get that word scandal. You can hear that in in the Greek and in the English. So that we do not make them angry, so that we do not shock them or cause them to sin, cause them to stumble. Avoid unnecessary offense when possible. One pastor observed that Jesus never did or said anything unnecessarily offensive. That's remarkable. Remember, Jesus is perfect. We, we often talk about him being perfect as in a, a sinless perfection, but he was also perfect in his wisdom. He never made a bad decision. He never made a, a wrong decision. He never made a mistake in choosing battles. You see, there are times when wisdom means battle. There are times where it would be unwise to remain silent. And there are times when wisdom takes a pass. It would be unwise to engage in battle. 
And we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that there are times where Jesus did, in fact, offend people. He was teaching in his own town. What was the result? They took offense at him. Or replying to the Pharisees, do you know that they were offended, his disciples asked. He's even teaching his disciples in this town of Capernaum, asking them, does this offend you? Jesus had offended And Jesus would offend again, but he never did so unnecessarily. Now, as far as this tax goes, we don't have a record of how all of this turned out. We also don't have a record of any incarceration for tax evasion on the part of Peter. So that's probably a good thing. We should assume that all of this took place exactly as Jesus predicted. And we see in this account just incredible freedom for members of God's family. But not without responsibility, an incredible responsibility. I'm going to turn out to the application, to to four points that we can draw from today's text. The first is an invitation to freedom. An invitation to freedom, not as in citizens of the republic in which we live, as good as that is, but but a freedom that Jesus offers. Jesus says everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, while we enjoy many of the good gifts of the freedom that we enjoy in this nation, each of us needs to determine how we're going to handle this statement. Jesus speaks of sin. We have to decide how we're going to deal with that. We sin against God by breaking his law. We sin because we enjoy it. We sin because it's in our nature. One way to address this is to do nothing, to take a pass on it. But Jesus says that he can set you free. That though you're enslaved to sin, though you commit sin, Jesus can break that chain. He can break that bond. He says, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. That is to say this morning, if you confess that you have sin, and you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for that sin, he says, you will be free You think you're free now. As a citizen of America, you have not yet experienced freedom. Not true freedom. Not the depth of freedom Jesus offers. Jesus says you'll no longer be a slave to sin. He uses the words free indeed. And if you've received this freedom from Christ then, if you've accepted this offer of freedom, then you and I are called to go and live as those who are free. No longer bond slaves to sin. Secondly, in this account, we see an astonishing knowledge possessed by Jesus. There's an astonishing knowledge that that our Lord possesses. Um, We say that he's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. That Jesus knows all things. Two times in our account, he, he shows this. He knew of the conversation that Peter had at the temple. Excuse me, he knew of the conversation Peter had about the temple tax. Remember, Peter walked in the door. He didn't even get a chance to talk before Jesus asked him a question. Jesus knew all about that. By the way, this also might be a picture of the grace of Jesus. 
Because I'm not sure you and I would be quite as kind, not if one of our buddies signs us up to pay more taxes. But secondly, at the end, he lays out the plan for paying the tax. This is that fishing story. He instructs Peter on how this is going to happen. And when he does so, he knows where to go. He knows how to get it. He knows which fish to check. He knows where it would be and how much it would be. That is a Jesus who knows all things. He tells Peter the plan. And when the Gospels present Jesus to us, they don't just tell you and I, well, Jesus knows all things. They show us his grace and his love and his mercy. They all come as a result of his knowledge. And I'll try to tie this together. What I think is so cool about Matthew's gospel is how he keeps coming back to Peter. Especially in these central chapters, we keep reading of Peter. Peter's interaction with Jesus. Peter's experience as a disciple. And Matthew, excuse me, Peter would tell you that Jesus is no robot, that he is a person, that he's relational. There's a relationship experienced here. Jesus knows all things about Peter, and he still desires a relationship. The same is going to be true for, for you and I, believer. Jesus knows all things about us, and he still desires relationship. Now, not only has Jesus experienced Peter so far in the gospel, we have an account of their exchanges, at least some of them, but he knows exactly what Peter will do at the end. He knows where things are going. He knows what's coming up. Do you remember how Peter boasts very close to the end before Jesus goes to the cross? What does he say? Even though all may fall away, Jesus, I will not. Jesus knows. He knows that fact about Peter as Peter walks through that door in Capernaum in that house on that day. He knows what Peter's going to do. And he knows that Peter's going to deny him. And he knows that he's going to be alone without Peter, without the disciples at the cross. And Jesus loves Peter. You see, That Jesus is all-knowing is not some cold doctrine reserved for the halls of seminaries. It's a reality. It's a spotlight that shines upon his other attributes in our lives. Does Jesus love you? Yes. And he knows what sin you'll commit this week. Does Jesus forgive you? Yes. And he can recount the number of times you've committed that sin that won't seem to go away. He knows everything about you, and he's unceasingly gracious and merciful toward you. Such is the knowledge of Jesus. It's a beautiful knowledge. It's an astonishing knowledge. Thirdly, verse 27 teaches us not to offend unnecessarily. We learn today that we are not to offend unnecessarily. Now, This is not the end goal of our Christian lives. And I say that because I think this has become a major objective in contemporary Christianity. 
Some churches make entire ministry decisions based around the answer to this question. Is this ministry going to offend someone? Well, then we shouldn't do it. Is this teaching going to offend someone? Then we shouldn't say it. This question might impact the daily Christian's living. Well, I'm not going to share Jesus if it's going to offend someone. Not offending people is not the end goal. This is not the point of our faith. Avoiding unnecessary offense is the means to the goal because the goal is the gospel and the goal is Jesus Christ. And when possible, you and I want to avoid offending people to get to the gospel. I would even say whether or not we've offended someone is not a question of our faith. It's a question of our fear. It's a fear of man. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. That word and that verse in the book of Proverbs is used to describe a wooden cage for birds. It's a picture of, a, of, of living a life whose goal is never to offend anyone. It's like you're stuck inside of this, this cage, an encaged life constrained by fear. Again, you and I, we're not looking for a fight, but we're not ignoring one for the sake of the gospel when necessary. Our lives should really have, have both of these. We should be able to point to times in our lives where we're able to navigate a situation without causing any unnecessary offense, just like Jesus did today. But there'll also be times in our lives that we can recount that we could not avoid causing offense. Not because, again, we're looking for a fight or because we grew angry, but because the gospel's at stake. Some things are worth fighting for. And Jesus did both of these. You'll find both of these happening throughout his ministry. He chose his battles. He did it perfectly. There are times where he offended, and there were times where he did not. At the end of the day, we have a freedom. We've seen that in our text today. It's a freedom that we should steward just as Jesus did. And we should use our freedom for the sake of Jesus and for the glory of the kingdom of God. Which brings me forth and finally to our last point of application. That is that you are free. Jesus sets you free. To me, in verse 26, the word exempt, it just jumps off the page at me. The sons or the daughters, they are exempt. And throughout the New Testament, the Bible teaches us what we are freed from and what we are freed for. We're freed from condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are freed from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. The picture there is, is dying to our flesh, dying to our old self, and being raised anew with a new self. We're new creatures. We're freed from condemnation. We're freed from sin. We're freed from death. Not a, a physical death, so to speak, for we all know that we will pass out of this life and into the next, but a freedom from eternal death, a freedom from hell. That is what we're saved from in Christ. We're free from the law. We're freed from keeping those 600 plus commandments of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, you are not under law, but under grace. And fifthly, we're free from enslavement. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19. 
By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Sin is no longer master over us. We are free from that. Well, we are also freed for. We're freed for freedom. We saw this earlier. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. We're freed for service, service to one another. Later in Galatians chapter 5, through love, serve one another. Some may believe that true freedom is freedom for me to, to live for myself to the highest degree possible. The Bible takes a bit of a different view. True freedom serves others. True freedom serves the Lord. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. That may be a curious thing to say. I am a slave to God. In verse 22 in Romans 6, it not only describes us that way, but it goes on to to list the benefits of living that way. There's something called sanctification or a, a holiness. Over time, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And as God's children, we become more and more like him. The outcome being then in that verse, eternal life. We spend eternity with him. We're also freed to follow our conscience. Again, when the issue is not sin, we're free to follow our conscience. Paul's going to ask, why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? The guiding principle in this conversation, namely, is not to to cause others to stumble, not to offend, but try to avoid it. Paul says each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And fifthly, we are freed for truth. Freed for truth. This might be an, an easy one to overlook. What does Jesus say to those who follow his words? He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I want to ask you this morning, are you free? And if you are free, how do you use your freedom? In 1953, a man named Joe Ligon was 15 years old, and he was arrested for robbery and murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, and that means that he spent almost seven decades behind bars. What's interesting about his story is that on three different occasions, he was offered release with parole. That'd be a a continued supervision by the state. That's what parole means. Well, what's interesting about this is that at each point, every time that offer was made, he rejected it. Because he knew what he did was wrong, but he wanted freedom. He wanted complete freedom. He wanted true freedom. And this finally happened for him a year ago. That should be this Thursday. will mark one year since he's been out. And obviously, as you might imagine, his world has changed drastically. And Joe's going to be 83 now. And reflecting on his release, he said this, it was like being born all over again because everything was new to me. Well, his goal now, as he says, is to help the younger generation avoid the mistakes that he made when he was 15. There's a man who helps him 
He's called a re-entry coordinator. He helps Joe uh, re-enter into society. He says it this way, you come out of prison, and just imagine all this, you can do what you want now. And what do you do with that? I want to ask you again, believer, what are you doing with your freedom? Praising God. <laughs> That's right, because God set us free from prison. We're no longer condemned. We're no longer judged. We're free from sin. We're free from enslavement to sin. The sentence deserved for our crimes, it's already been paid. There's no fines. There's no time. There's no parole. There's no penalty. Jesus set you free. You're exempt. You're free. Now, what will you do with that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom you've given us in Jesus Christ. We are guilty. And if we're honest and we confess, we commit crimes even to today as free men and women. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for the freedom that you've given us, a freedom to, to serve you and a freedom to live for you. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to be good stewards of this amazing freedom. We are thankful for it, and we're thankful for Christ, and we're thankful for one another. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.